Welcome to the Illustrator Studio. I am Jesse Kowalski, Curator of Exhibitions at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. The Illustrator Studio is a weekly interview series, a project of the museum's Rockwell Center for American Visual Studies. Welcome. First panel of the day for everybody here, I hope. Uh, thank you for coming. We have an amazing lineup of two great, great artists. And which I'll be uh, introducing and bringing them on stage right now. First up, we have Frank Miller there, legendary creator of Sin City and 300 and Batman The Dark Knight Returns. Good to be here. Next up is the award-winning children's uh, writer and artist, children's uh, book author and artist, Tony DiTrolizzi. That's good. We got the memo. So you see the, the black jacket and the, we both got our converse. Yeah. Awesome. Mine are nicer than his. Just got to get uh, a couple more movies made and then maybe I'll get a, a nicer pair of converse. Uh, first up, we have a, a, a... It won't help. <laughs> we have a... Uh, so both of these gentlemen are going to be having a, uh, exhibitions at the Norman Rockwell Museum. Uh, and we have a video to play from the Norman, Norman Rockwell Museum. Being in an artistic household, my parents would buy different art books for, for, that I had, we, all of us Dieterlisi kids had to share. And uh, we had a few books that were highly coveted. One was Harry Abrams created this giant collection of Norman Rockwell's uh, Saturday Evening Post covers. And that was a fantastic book. My dad and mom had taken the famous artist course when they were younger that Rockwell was a part of. So Rockwell was definitely a big part of growing up in our household. My mom also bought us Brian Froud and Alan Lee's Fairies book in the late 70s. And that just blew my mind. Having a, a retrospective at, you know, at not even 50 years old at the Norman Rockwell Museum is a, is a huge success to me. It's very meaningful to me. I mean, I grew up copying his drawings and, and looking at that and wishing I could be an illustrator like him. So to have a collection of, of my drawings from, you know, the beginning of my career to where I am now is, is an incredible milestone. It's, a, it's very meaningful to me to be able to have my work hanging alongside these, these paintings that, that are iconic now, legendary. When I think of Illustrator, I think, I think of his work and, and, and the idea of, of wanting to be someone who's remembered in that way, that, that all this artwork that I'm creating, these stories I'm telling, don't disappear when I disappear, that they, that they live on. This is an incredible achievement for me. Uh, I, I thought like 70-year-old Tony might get to see this so the idea of 40-something Tony getting to see this is, is, I'm waiting for my mom to wake me up and I'm still in seventh grade and awkward and playing Dungeons and Dragons and no one understands me. And, and it's just very much a dream come true for me. Man, my head is fat. That thing is just, it's like a water balloon, Frank. So you both have... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you both will be having your, your works shown in that museum. Um, you're, you're later this year and then you're probably the, the year after. Mm -hmm. uh, what was it about uh, Norman Rockwell that, that uh, you guys looked up to? 
Um, Norman Rockwell, first off, first of just, just as an illustrator, he was outstanding. He was world-class in every sense. And, and just as someone who spent his, his whole career um, drawing and, and uh, composing pictures and all of that, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see a, you know, a master at work. Beyond that, uh, Rockwell had a way of capturing the essence of his country and his people in his time. It was with, with deep affection and with, 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 with great care. Now, he, like, like most artists, he's known for the things that he did that have become cliches. They become cliches because they've been imitated so much. Yeah. But, that's, but uh, when he did them, they were fresh and original, and they still are when you look at his work. But um, it, to, to, to actually visit his museum, uh, or even to just look at a book of his work, you see a much wider breadth of, breadth of, um, of uh, you know, of, you see the scale and the scope of what he did. And of course, going to the museum also, you get to see the methods he, he worked in. And they're fascinating because, it, because uh, you know, as a practitioner, I particularly enjoy looking at the other guy's tricks. And uh, like any good artist, he used every trick in the book. It's interesting because I think um, both you and I use story and pages to, oh, tell, to tell our yeah. stories and reveal it. And the mastery of Rockwell is he does it in one image. He yeah. tells an entire story through props and models, body language, and the fact that he kept that going, you know, month after month for those covers is pretty amazing. I always thought, now, I, I always thought actually that he depicted uh, a happier America through really horrible, you know, the Great Depression, oh, yeah. going into the war, yeah, and yet he's depicting these, what we kind of consider like saccharine images, but I think he's intentionally doing this to to like raise, raise our hopes. Oh, well, keep in mind, keep in mind that, that what was going on in American cinema at the time was very buoyant, optimistic movies were coming out during a time of war, of world war. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so at, um, at that period, entertainers and artists took it very much as their duty to lift people's spirits and to give them hope. Wow, we need them now more than ever, huh? <laughs> but a lot of artists, or, or the sort of the, the hoity-toity crowd, didn't take Norman Rockwell seriously. But yeah. in many ways, he's outlasted. You know, it's 70 years later, and, and people are still talking to him. Well, as a comic book artist, I can, I can sympathize. <laughs> <laughs> and as a kid's book. Oh, you yeah. do, you do kids, kiddie books. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, yeah. thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. I have an idea for a kid's book. <laughs> you know how many decades we had to wait for mouse to clumber along and, and, and get people to a, get to at least the literary hoity-toities to take us seriously? I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how long it takes to change people's points of view. Yeah. Yeah, there's, it's the same thing with, like you said, with, with children's art. I mean, children's art goes back hundreds of years and is, is in museums and, and people still sort of look at it as a bit of a, a downgrade because you're not like in the New York art scene. Oh, and Tony and I, Tony and I have conversations whenever we meet about artists like Tennille, yeah. Arthur Rackham, yeah. and, and other people who, 
who, whose names are unrecognized by most of the most of the public, but but who are who are real legends in, in illustration, and uh, you know, there just became this bizarre division that I don't know if it started in England or in America of separating illustration into adult and children's categories. Yeah, and yet the the interesting thing is when we're young infants. The, uh, some of our first exposure to art is through books. Yeah. Here's a copy of The Very Hungry Caterpillar. I'm going to read you Goodnight Moon. Here's right. Dr. Seuss. Here's yeah. Maurice Sendak. I mean, for me, that's not just forming my view of drawing and art and <laughs> yeah. pictures. And then that dialogue now continues into, as if you become a reader and if you love visuals and you need visuals to understand and comprehend what you're reading as you're grasping this superpower, frankly, to be able to look at these words on a page and, and get uh -huh. emotion mm -hmm. that moves into comics. I feel like it all lives in that kind of yeah. really important part of the formation of who we are mm -hmm. as, as young people. So who are, when you guys were young, who are the people that you guys were looking up to and, and, and trying to emulate? Oh, wow. Uh, Jack Kirby. Um, I'd have to say would be, would be the biggest one. And then, then um, as time passed by, um, I discovered uh, Will Eisner when yeah. Dennis Kitchen started reprinting the, um, the Spirit, um, and, and you know many others. But um, the next big breakthrough for me was when Forbidden Planet opened its doors in New York City, and I discovered the the the, uh, the world of European comics and, and, and Japanese comics. Um, and so that was when I, that was when I um, obviously got exposed to Jean Giraud, Mobius, yeah. um, but also jewels like Jacques Tardy, who remains who remains one of my absolute favorite comic book artists. You know, uh, speaking of Eisner, I don't know if I've told you the story. When I graduated from art school down in Florida, Will Eisner was teaching a class. Sure. So I took this class, thinking um, either. I could learn to do comics or the, what I'd glean from the way comic artists think mm -hmm. would be incredible. And it was me, one other artist, and about 20 comic book collectors in this class. <laughs> and, and Will would be at the easel going, now when I drew the spirit, and he'd rip it off, and then, but when I drew this one, and he'd rip it off, and at the end of the class, they would just, just yeah, you know. Yeah, just, yeah. So we had to bring in, uh, three comic book artists that we looked up to. Yeah. And I brought in um, popular artists of 1990, so in that, that year, I don't want to badmouth anyone, but I remember him looking at him going, crap, garbage, oh, Frank Miller, he's good. I like that guy's stuff. <laughs> That's not what he told me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, had, I, I, would, I would get together with, with, with Will and, uh, and it was, it's, it's the, the mentors I've had have all had a very New York habit of ripping me to pieces. You know, it's, it's a, the, the first one was Neil Adams, um, and and then there was Will Eisner, and and in both cases they they would simply um, look at the work and tell me everything that was wrong with it. Um, after a while, I realized not to get my ego too bruised because this man was spending an hour and a half telling me how bad my work was. Ah, nice. There's a lot of flattery in that. 
That's awesome. I, you know, I, I had also, but with, with Will, I'm sorry, no, no. but with Will, it also turned into an ongoing dialogue that never ended. That's awesome. Um, that, that he and I would, he and I would argue well into the night. There was, um, and we, we eventually did the, the book together that, that, that uh, was supposed to be me interviewing him and it ended up being an extended debate, the Eisner Miller book. Um, and for that, I, I, um, Charles Brownstein and I went to Florida and stayed near, his, near his, his home and visited him every day and we taped these long conversations. And, and, and uh, it, was, it was fascinating to see how it shifted because at first it was, it was Mr. Eisner, sir. And, and, and by, you know, by the end of it, it was like, yeah, you're crazy. You know? <laughs> and and, and, and we, were just, we were just throwing lines back and forth. I learned more from that book than anybody who reads it could, I think. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's amazing. I had a lot of artists that I, you know, I, I talked in the little film with my fat head about Norman Rockwell and, and Brian Froud, but I, actually one of my big heroes happened, I, I met in fifth grade. So we had to do this, um, we had to do book reports. Uh -huh. And uh, we had to do oral book reports. Did you, did you have to do that? Oh, oral yeah. book reports? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like oral surgery, you know, you just get yeah. up there and... It Tell everybody for public speaking. Yeah, <laughs> I was really bad at it, and it, we had all these really awesome books on our fifth grade reading list. But for some reason, um, I really struggled with them because there wasn't a lot of illustrations in them. I loved books with a lot of illustrations, and I couldn't do an oral book report on a comic book. I had to do one on, you know, the Phantom Tollbooth or the Hobbit or Mouse and the Motorcycle, and so I really struggled. My fifth grade teacher's <clears throat> name was Mr. Strasberger. Strasburger. We called them hamburger, cheeseburger, all the burgers. Yeah, it's like the, that kind of brilliant wit you have at that age. <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, he made a deal with me. He said, because um, I was that kid that always drew in the back of the class. He'd be at the front of the class talking, and I just had my head down, just drawing sure. the whole time. And um, he said, I'll tell you what, if you do a drawing from these books, you can't copy the illustration. You have to actually come up with your own drawings. I'll give you extra credit. And somehow when I went back to those books, I wasn't reading um, uh, a story. I was actually reading like directions or instructions of what I would draw. That was, when I look back on my life, that was like a massively pivotal moment mm -hmm. in me becoming an illustrator and a reader. So he's a big hero to me for do, that. Do you still have those pages? I have some. I have some stuff. Yeah, my my family is a lot of. There's a lot of hoarding and things that that's carefully collected. Um, yeah, yeah, I have a lot of stuff from from grade school. But I um, that when I think back in my life, when you look back at all the the highlights in your life, that one is is a massive pivotal moment for me. Well, yeah, that's a massive formative event in in your in your career. And Frank, what kind of formative events did you have in your childhood that set you that made you want to draw and write comics? Oh, I, I um, my story's not nearly as interesting as Tony's. I, I uh, no, I, I uh, grew up reading a lot of them, and 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 would and would uh, get take typing paper and fold it over and make little comic books out of it. Um, and and of, of you know, it's it's it, it, when I was very very young, when I was about five years old, I did, I told my mother I would be doing comic books for the rest of my life, and. Uh, and it is, it, but I was I was trying to come up with characters, and I was coming up with a bad version of the Legion of Superheroes, that sort of thing, and uh, and 
one day she was, she was cooking and she said, well, why don't you do a comic book about a doughboy? Meaning, of course, a fighter pilot. She was, however, making bread when she said that. <laughs> so I went, yeah, a boy with the powers of dough. <laughs> and so, I, so I made up a character who could get big, he could stretch, um, but, 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 it, but if exposed to heat, he became brittle and would break. Dude, like, where is that book? <laughs> <laughs> I think, my, I think my, my dear older brother actually kept all that stuff and he's got it packed away. Oh, and the sidekick's like Icing Man or something. Uh, you know, I don't think he had a sidekick. I didn't get that far. But, <laughs> but he's like, can't have gluten. He needs to... <laughs> that, that's like his weakness. That's like his... I was a five-year-old kid in the early 60s. Do you think I knew what gluten was? <laughs> I'm a 40-year-old in 2017. I still don't know what gluten is. I don't know is. what the hell gluten is. <laughs> Um, but, you, but you had experiences later on in life that, that really kind of influenced your work, like your, your move from Vermont to New York. Yeah. So how, how did that affect, affect you and affect your work? Well, first and foremost, I got to move to, to a city I'd always dreamed of living in ever since I first fell in love with it, watching the old Kojak TV show and, and, and then old um, crime movies that I saw along the way. Um, but New York changed my life in every way, so it developed me as an artist. I mean, it's, 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 I, it was a place where, where I, you know, I <laughs> did everything from get mugged to fall in love. So it's, 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 of course that changes what you do with your work. Okay. But yeah. also, but the, 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 the main thing that would affect the work directly is that that's where I cut my teeth in, in, um, in, in meeting the professionals and learning the ropes and, 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 uh, and getting the the stern tutoring of Neil Adams, and 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 meeting the whole um, the wonderful community of, of comic book people that was that was that was centered in New York um, in the early '80s, um, and and particularly around the houses of DC and Marvel, those were meeting places beyond, beyond not just for editorial um, sessions and so on. That was where the, where all of the freelance artists and writers would, would come and congregate and then we'd, we'd, we'd pack lunches and go into the park and talk shop and, and that, was, that, that was our social life. It was a wonderful time. That's incredible. You know what's crazy is you're telling me that? Yeah. Or telling all these folks that? I wasn't even talking to you. I know. <laughs> but I'm thinking it was the same way in the 90s when yeah. uh, Angela and I moved to New York. It was yeah. the same, this, this amazing center for children's publishing and the same yeah. thing. You got you intersected with... Well, that's with, great to hear. That's great to you hear. You like that? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, I thought, I thought, I thought that you children's um, publishing people were just all nasty people who hung out in parks and <laughs> asked candy out to little kids or something. <laughs> Do you know how awkward it is when you don't have a kid and you see the perfect like, model for your next book and you're... <laughs> You're just like a, a dude coming up to some family. Oh, that's, like, that's, just, that's right up there with, 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 with seeing an absolutely beautiful young woman in the street and, and, and wanting to say, I've got a character you'd be perfect for. Would you come to my studio so I can draw you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now imagine she's nine and you're saying... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs>
Now, Frank, Bless you. you, you uh, I th you've told the story of how you, you've got, you got mugged in New York, oh, sure, and yeah. that set you on the path to, to create Dark Knight. Yeah. Can you share that story? Because it's such a, an amazing oh, it's, No, it's, very, it's, it's not much of a story. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, got mugged at knife point, and um, it scared the death out of me, and I remember how absolutely help, helpless I felt, and how completely at mercy, and how much I felt like a slave at that point. Like, I, we, we, you know, the man had complete power over me and uh, went into a diabolical rage that so I was you know I was like storming around like Charles Bronson for a few days there and, and, and finally I decided to, I better turn this into a comic book and I uh, <clears throat> right around the same time Dick Giordano at DC Comics said that he wanted to talk to me about Batman because he said he said I go to these conventions conventions and he's the most popular character we've got but we can't sell him <laughs> the, the book you know the, the, we were cutting titles you know we're talking about cutting frequency so if you got any ideas um, about Batman now it is heaven when a publisher says we're on the ropes because <laughs> it means the handcuffs are off and and uh, and so I, I mulled it over and I said, I came back after a while and I said, yeah, I want to make him impossibly old. He'll be 50. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, he's going to come back and he's going to be meaner than ever. And there was, great, great, great. That's perfect. I said, he's going to have a, a Batmobile that's like a tank. It's an urban assault vehicle and takes the entire city blocks. I went, great, great, great. I said, bodies are going to be flying everywhere. Great, great, great. And I'm getting rid of the yellow circle. No! <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, it's kind of a, the wonders of, of, of working with trademarked characters. Oh, my God. That's what crossed the line was the yellow circle. Well, so, so, yeah, I, I could not remove the yellow circle. I said, okay, I'm not removing the yellow circle. But second chapter, he gets into a big fight. He gets all torn to pieces. He vanishes in the back cave. He comes back, patches himself up, puts on the old suit, and nobody notices. Nice. Since then, no yellow circle on Batman. Well done. <laughs> well done. <laughs> See, the thing, about, the thing about the yellow circle was there were two things about it that, that didn't work. One was why wear a target if you're Batman, you know? But the other thing is it, it, it took it from being this big, square, cool Dick Sprang emblem and turning it into this kind of, kind of effeminate little curly cue bat that, mm -hmm. that, that it was like, oh, there's Batman. And that's just, it, <laughs> like an old rubber, dangly yeah. Halloween bat. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, it, it just, it just um, didn't no. work. No, no. no. Tony, Tony, did you have... You obviously, you probably didn't get mugged. But, uh, <laughs> By Frank, I mean. <laughs> but did, you, did you have Not some? Yet. <laughs> did you have some kind of like a you know, event that kind of really changed and set you, you know, maybe to do the Spiderweb Chronicles or something that inspired you to, you know, do the, you know, the the, the Spider and the Fly, something that kind of like, bam. I think every author, at least the authors I know, there's the story you are telling 
and then there's the story of what's going on in your life that's causing you to write the story you're telling. And a lot of the stories I feel that I've created are actually just me processing something in my life. And, uh, and those are the books I actually like the most where they're, they're stories that just really, they don't answer a lot of questions, they just ask a lot of questions and they kind of leave you with that longing after you, you put oh, the well book said, down. Well yeah. said, yeah. So I, I, um, I mean, Spiderwick came from a love of, of Dungeons and Dragons, a love of um, Brian Froud and Alan Lee, and Brian went on to work with Jim Henson for Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal. Alan Lee went on to work for that little film trilogy, uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, so they were visionaries in their own right, had a huge impact on me. And I, I love, I, I was, a, growing up in Florida, I caught a lot of insects, because that's, that's what Florida's full of. You Old monster. people and bugs. Yeah, bugs, big bugs. Living, sweet creatures no, that I, do no harm. Well, In fact, protect the environment. <laughs> when a mosquito with You've a seen. nose that long. <laughs> No, I, I was the last of its kind. <laughs> <laughs> it would look great in a shadow box. Um, I, 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 I agree with you. I love, I love the, 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 the weird in nature. And so I, I thought it would be interesting to make a field guide to I'm like Vincent Price loved all those women in all those movies. I'm like that. Well, you, you love the insects. That's why you, <laughs> I'm going to make, I'm going <laughs> to, to make a field guide to women? Is, is that what you're, like, like Vincent Price? I will fail miserably at that. <laughs> um, so I, I, I had come up with this, this, this idea really out of boredom, Boris. I mean, I was like 12 years old and, and um, I was home from summer break and I had leftover school supplies and I thought about the monsters in Dungeons and Dragons. I thought about the folklore that I'd read in these fairies books, and I thought about field guides. I mean, you can see the, the raw manna. And I just took my trapper keeper, and each day I drew a monster or a dragon or a troll, and then I'd write this scientific mumbo-jumbo jargon about it. And because I'd watched Roadrunner car uh, cartoons, I therefore knew Latin. So <laughs> I knew that, like, the Latin word You're for dragon. Yeah. I knew like the Latin word for dragon is like firus breathus batus. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So I did this whole thing and then I forgot about it. And then many years later I thought this would be a really cool concept for a book for 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 ten year old me. What could I make now that ten year like what could old Tony make that young Tony would wanna read? And uh you know, uh, I worked with Holly Black on Spiderwick, and the interesting thing is my, I was older, but my family was going through a separation, which is a big part of Spiderwick. And that, to me, is, those are the best fantasy stories or science fiction stories. They're not really about the, the monsters or the fairies. They're actually about the real-world problems that the character is coping with. And the fantastic creatures or monsters, they're manifestations of the fear and the anger or whatever emotions are that are, that are going on in, inside of them. So there was definitely real world stuff that always affects how I make my books. Yeah. There always has to be. The, 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 uh, these, um, it has to have some sort of resonance, something that makes you actually feel something. Yeah. And the, the uh, um, because, because that's where all, the, all mythology comes from anyway. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, 
<clears throat> I know you can be convinced otherwise in, in events like this, but there really aren't dragons out there. And, I mean, <laughs> they, they, they represent something in our minds. Yeah. I was thinking, like, a lot of times my stories are about ordinary kids, like ordinary characters in extraordinary circumstances. Do you look at super... Because I, I, when I think of superheroes, I always think they're extraordinary characters in extraordinary circumstances, but do you see it differently? Like, do you... Because you've got to find that, that shred of humanity that we can kind of cling to so that we feel for them. Oh. Sorry, Boris, I'm taking over now. I'm going to start asking a question. I see these characters, excuse me, as <coughs> normal people writ large. That that is that is uh, that is Batman at, at his heart is is a uh, <coughs> someone who started out as a scared little kid. When he's five years old, all of a sudden this maniac came out of shadows with a gun, and all the sense went out of his life. Mm -hmm. And so this little boy just. And he had a choice sitting there with those corpses in front of him. He could just he could just become a useless human being, become some lunatic walking the streets, or be someone who just took the money he inherited and squandered it, mm -hmm. destroying himself or whatever. Or he could take all that unbelievable rage and horror he had and and turn it against the forces that killed his parents. And so so he turned himself into a demon mm -hmm. to, to hunt down the monsters. You know, obviously, uh, the, now in the, in the comic books, in the original comic books, he actually got the guy who killed him. Oh, really? Yeah. Joe Chill. <laughs> that was I, the guy's name? Yeah. yeah it, was, it was bad. It was bad. That sounds um, like an 80s I'm Joe Chill. No, it was, it was. Hey, ladies. It was, it was, it was, no, it was, it was a, I think late 40s, early 50s character, early 50s, that was when they did the worst stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it, it, the only way I could make it work was that, was that he, 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 he must never be satisfied. Right. He must never have any, any of the thing we so conveniently call closure, and that it has to be an open wound for the rest of his life. So that he, that while he progresses on become, to become, the greatest crime fighter the world will ever know, and a, and a, you know, a genius. Um, he's still at heart a five-year-old boy with his eyes wide, staring into existential horror. That's awesome. That's fascinating. I, you know, it's interesting as you're saying this. I'm thinking of of Jared Grace in the Spiderwick Chronicles. So Jared is so angry about the divorce and the separation that his right. family's going through. And, and Mogorath, the big bad, the, the big ogre, is also angry at what the humans have done to the Fairwell. So it, it has this parallel track mm -hmm. that kind of runs. And then at a certain point, he sees it. So I think that this is the, the closure you're probably talking about, yeah. and then decides to turn in a different direction. Yeah. Um, and, and Mogorath does it, and ultimately, you know, he pays the, pays the price for it. And so what yeah. you're saying is with a, a superhero like Batman, that, that, that never happens. It never... There is no resolution no, for No, there can't really. ever, because, well, because really, if, if you think about it, um, Batman has every reason to just say, I'm getting pretty tired. <laughs> I got all the money in the world. Yeah. And, and I can travel anywhere, and, and uh, you know, and, and women just adore me because I'm just a handsome devil. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but, you know, and, I mean, he's not staying Batman because he's got a great car. 
Do you think that's why sequels sometimes, whether they're in books or in film, don't always work because the yeah. first thing is so self-contained, it does have closure, yeah. Yeah. and then they try to go reopen the wound, yeah. so to speak, yeah. and it's not as genuine? Yeah, I think the best kind of sequel is where, is where you can actually move your focus. Um, either put the character through a completely different set of paces or simply move from one character to yeah, another. Um, so why I'm, I'm so happy with Sin City as a vehicle is that, is that um, I mean, I, I, I established the ground rules in Sin City in the very first one, because I, 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 I said I'm gonna introduce the lead character, people are gonna think Sin City is Marv's comic, right. and he's gonna die. Yeah. You know, from I set out from the beginning to lead to his death, and every page in Sin City is leading toward his death. He thinks about it all the time. Yeah. And, but so, but once he died, then I figured I'd establish that this was a very dangerous place. Right. And, and I'd have all the freedom in the world. So the real main character is the city itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you guys tackle bad guys? We've been talking about heroes here. Now, now what, what makes it With great? relish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're only as good as their antagonist is the bad guy. Yeah. I, I mean, again... They're often a lot more fun to write. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I kind of think of like, with, again, with Spiderwick, when Holly and I were working on it, we thought of Jared and Mulgarath are kind of the same. He's like the, the bigger mutation of, yeah. of Jared. I mean, and then I've definitely... I, I always feel like they're the best bad guys you agree with their motivation at some point. Absolutely. You see, you Absolutely. see like, yeah. I can see the logic in that. Wait, am I, what am I saying? You know, like, those are the best you bad guys. Tony, I, I agree with that in almost every case. But um, there, sometimes I think a character can reach the level of being satanic. And, and when I got to the Joker, I just, I just decided to more, I looked at some of the oldest versions of the Joker back in the Jerry Robinson days and so on. And, and I just decided to go for broke and make him so diabolical that, that there was no... There was no glimmer was of humanity to left. To, there was, he was, he was not, and I, and I, I even made him like, you know, sexually twisted so that you'd be afraid for little Robin yeah. when he was around. And there was hints at what had happened to, you know, to Jason Todd and, right, and so on. And in that case, I wanted him to be, to be, to be, you know, to be a devil. Yeah. Whereas other villains, I think, can be wonderfully multi-dimensional characters. That's interesting. I, I definitely feel like um, with with the books that I've written for children, I again, I kind of take these these manifestations of the fears that I had when I was ten. You know. Sure. What would happen if I lost my parents? You know, how would I survive? Um, and I think it's also at that point in your life when you start to realize, at least for me, you know, there was, there's your home that you're cognitive and aware of when you're very young. Mm -hmm. And then as you get older, there's your neighborhood, your street. And it's really, for me, I felt, at least for me, as, as you're leaving elementary school and going into middle school, that's when you start to really become aware of the world, the larger world. That's when you start to see the news and the stuff that's going on in a bigger, your parents can't shield you from it. And that's when the real, the real fears start to, to creep in. Well, that's an interesting observation, Tony, because I remember being horribly afraid when I was in first grade. I grew up in, I grew up in uh, 
farmland Vermont, and some of those bullies beat the snot out of me. That's but true. No, the, that's. I mean, the, 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 uh, I, I believe childhood can be full of terror. Oh, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I'm, I'm referring, um, and, I, and you see it, and, and to this day you still see it. I, I was thinking of the, the larger looming, I guess the reality of, of adulthood almost. Oh, okay. Kind of, the, okay. The awareness. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, because yeah. school is very, even, even high school, it's, it's you're just focused on the day. If, you, know, you don't see university and, and life after university during, in high school because it's like you're in ninth grade and you're getting picked on, and that's, that's your life, and, and, that's, and, that's, and you think that's how it's going to be forever. That's true. Absolutely. I would have killed myself if I thought that was waiting for me forever. <laughs> <laughs> but I think those antagonists in real life, I mean, who am I to say, but I mean, if you had not been attacked, yeah. would you have created Dark Knight? Would you have done it? No. I, I can't imagine, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's to, to, I don't know what kind of person any of us would have been if we'd grown up in a perfectly benign world. I mean, yeah. I just don't think we really have much use for comic books. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's or for heroic stories anyway. Yeah. Um, it, it does take a certain amount of adversity to, for there to be any reason for any, any kind of heroism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just switching tack to you both, you both have had uh, your, your, uh, your works translated into, uh, into movies. How has that experience uh, been for you both and, and, uh, and, and how, does it, how is it like seeing your heroes change on screen? I mean, I, you're going to have a long, you're going to much longer answer than me. I, um, I think that the, what a book has to accomplish for its readers to entertain <clears throat> those readers is different than what a film has to accomplish and deliver for its viewers. Um, it, for me, if the core philosophy, the core theme can be maintained and the integrity of, of the hero and what that hero has to, to do, the, the paces, as you said, they have to kind of go through to get through this change, this cathartic change in their life. If that can be maintained, then I, I feel like we're, we're off to a good start. And fortunately for, for Spiderwick, that they, they, the, the filmmakers held on to that. So I was yeah. very, very happy yeah. at, at that very philosophical, simple level. You know, that's because we've. I think we've all read a book, and you see the movie or the TV show, and you're like, "What did they do? Like, what happened? That that you know, he wouldn't do that. She would never say that." That's when I think they, the filmmakers, have pivoted too far from mm. the the essence of who the character really is. Yeah, that's really that. That would be my my answer with the with yeah. the, as far as heroes and protagonists mm. are concerned. What about for you, though? Well, my 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 experience was was magical, in that I I. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny, actually, because I, um, I, had, I had done some work in Hollywood, and, and I'd, I'd, I'd had my part in, in, in making a very bad movie. And, and, uh, um, and, I, and I sat down to start, to start Sin City after that, and I said, well, I'm just going to do a comic book that can't be adapted, that nobody can possibly make a movie out of this thing. <laughs> And, 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 and so I sat down, I started Sin City, and I said, and, but, but the thing is, is, what I got in mind is so personal, nobody's going to want to read it, so I'll just bury it in this little anthology Dark Horse Presents. And, and well, it, obviously people liked it, so it got its own title, and, and, and it kept going. But um, then this, this crazy Texan calls me up, and, <laughs> and he goes, hey, Frank, it's Robert Rodriguez, so, you know, it's, 
I want to make a movie out of Sin City. And I said, no. <laughs> and, and he went, what? I said, no, I really, I, you know, I, I worked on a movie once. It didn't work out real well. And, and, and I, 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 I see, this is my baby, and I don't want it to turn into anything else because I don't want people to just think of it as being a bad movie. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, okay. <laughs> then my editor, Bob Shrek, calls me up a couple days later. No, it was the next day. And he said, Frank, you're an idiot. He said, do you know who you were talking to? And I said, no, no. And, 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 he, and he said, and he said you, you've got you to take this meeting. So I took the meeting. I met that guy, and he's a really cool guy. And I said, no. And, and, he, he, said and, he, no? Said, and he said, he said <laughs> okay. And he called me the next day and said, look, I, I got an idea. I'll fly you to Texas, and we'll do a test. Just a little test. Take one of your short little stories. And it'll be like a two-minute thing. If you don't like it, we'll just have a fun little movie we should have friends. And I said, how do you turn that down? So I, so I took the flight to Texas, and he had his whole crew set up. And he had two actors, Josh Hartnett and Marley Shelton, um, ready to, to play in my little story, The Customer's Always Right, which wound up being the first two minutes of, of the movie. And um, we, we shot it, and at the end of it, I just walked over and shook his hand and said, you're right, when do we start? And the whole adventure began. Rodriguez is an amazing man. That's awesome. Yeah. That does very, very cool. Yeah. Um, there's a, has, there, has there ever been, an, uh, you know, because we're obviously at Comic-Con, has there been a fan interaction that has made you aware, grasp the, the kind of power or influence you guys have had on, on your readers? I, I think when a, um, when a kid or, or an, a, an adult comes up and says, I, I want to draw, I, I became an artist or I want to be an artist because I saw your work. That, that validates, yeah, right. I, 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 I mean, I told this to, uh, you know, one of my heroes, Brian Froud, many years ago, and Brian said, you know, we were all linked, we're all links like in a chain that, that is all interconnected. Yeah. And so the idea of being linked to someone like Brian, who's linked to Arthur Rackham, and, and being linked to someone like Frank, uh, and then us creating, you know, inspiring other people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it's strange, because I still perpetually see myself as a 10-year-old, but it's, it's, it's incredibly validating why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I find so many, so many of the interactions rewarding that way. It's, it's like, um, one, I guess one thing that I find the most personally gratifying is, is, is when I see some kid come up and he's got a stack of drawings he's done, that he's worked very hard on, yeah. very seriously on. And I get to sit down with him and, and, and do what my mentors did with me. Chew him up and, and spit him out? <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm, I, 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 you know, it's, it's like I'm not that much of a New Yorker, okay? I, I, I you know, it's, 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 it's a, but it's no, it's like if it was, if it was, some, if it was someone who's just about ready to break in, then I'd chew them up. But if it's someone who's just getting started, I, I just point out things to help them. But it's very gratifying 
to see that the craft is living on and that it's in, it remains in very enthusiastic hands because look, when I, you've got to understand the history here. When I got, when I first showed up in New York, I was, I was, I, the first editor I saw at DC Comics was a sweet old guy who'd been, who'd been in comics since the ninth, since the DC Comics. And, and he looked at me and he, and he looked over my artwork and he just said, boy, you put a lot of work into this, but you know, everybody knows we're going to be out of business in a couple of years. <laughs> there won't be any more comic books. So like, why don't you just go back, go back to where's Vermont? Go back to Vermont, you know, get a job, sell books. But there won't be any comic books. And it's, I, I think back on that, and I'd sit here, and it's <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing, too, speaking of fans, I mean, there's an entire industry because of your Daredevil work, which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And which was, like, created as, as, like, an homage to, to you. So when that first came out, how did you feel, like, seeing... It was Ronin, right? Actually, it was almost like a parody of Ronin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, look, give these guys credit. Sure, they were. It was. It was. It was. It was. It was. They, they used some of Daredevil, some of Ronan. They were big fans of my stuff, obviously. But give these guys credit. They came up with about the best damn name for a comic book anybody ever heard of. <laughs> it was every every cliche, trendy thing in comics at the time, packed into one thing with turtles tacked on the end. Because yeah. <laughs> they couldn't draw people. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. I mean, so so, uh, and then and then, look, it wasn't my stuff that got spun off into eighteen movies and cartoon shows and a toy line that goes on around the park. <laughs> Bless them, they did great. Yeah, they did. Uh, any questions from the crowd? Quickly, while we still have time. Anyone? Wow, anyone? Bueller? Bueller? You, sir. Um, I met you not a decade ago, Tony, um, and your wife took credit for your uh, being found. I was always wondering if I could get your take on how you broke into the industry. Oh, when he talks about being found, his mother lost him in a shopping center. <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife did did break me into that it's it's just true it's i i mean i i'm very fortunate in that i have an incredible uh partner and and my best friend in angela and um yes yes so she's here i know she's here i also have to get on a plane and fly home tomorrow so i mean you know <laughs> No, I, um, it is, uh, and I'm sure you could probably uh, comment on this too, Frank. I mean, living in New York is the publishing center of, of America, and, uh, and all the children's publishers are there. And it was, in the 90s, it was very hard to break in. Talent alone was not going to do it for me. And uh, Angela was a makeup artist in Soho, and this woman came in, and she had a scholastic uh, book bag, and she came in to get makeup done, and Angela was like, all right. And she did one eye, and the woman's like, oh, my God, it looks beautiful. I'll do the other eye, but I need your business card. And the woman was like, uh, okay. So she gave her the card, and I went in, and um, 
you know, I, I, uh, there was a bunch of editors. No, at the time in the 90s, if you can believe this, they were like, your stuff's all fantasy and dragons and monsters. We're not into that. This, of course, would be Scholastic who would go on to publish what Harry put, Potter. Only to stories about selling drugs? What? <laughs> <laughs> Nonfiction, that's what we want. Um, so I, you know, I ended up meeting this one editor, and he left Scholastic and went to Simon & Schuster, and I've published with them ever since. Hmm. So I'm very, that's very great. lucky. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that long-standing relationship is wonderful. Good. You should try that sometime. You might. <laughs> No, not having long-standing relationship like Simon. You should you should try Simon Schuster. I'm giving you a segue. Of, oh, I see. You should okay. try working okay. with Simon Schuster. That might be okay. something interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do I see? He talks to me about a publisher. That's chop talk, man. You know, come on. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know, it'd be kind. I mean, you've done a lot of cool comics. I mean, if I think it'd be cool if you did a kids book. Oh, I'd love to. I'd Wouldn't it be kind of cool? I'd love to hear okay, so, yeah. I've, I've wanted to for a long time. Yeah? yeah cool. What about oh. you, Tony? Uh, any <laughs> comics in your future? Okay, well, let's go back to my Will Eisner class, where I showed Boy, Will... Boy, he ducks and dodges. And yeah. <laughs> watch Tony hide under a flat rock. <laughs> uh, Will Eisner was like, uh, yeah, you're, you're a really good illustrator. You'll never be a comic book artist. That's what he told me. God, he had a way of just, 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 just charging you up and telling you, yeah. <laughs> take the wind. Yeah. Feeling, feeling good. I then started joining the comic book artist, grabbing his, you know, drawings of spirits so I could sell them on eBay later oh, and try yeah. to make some money. Yeah. <laughs> One last question. <laughs> That's all I got on that. Over there. When I wrote Daredevil, yeah. the uh, well, I I, uh, I would outline the stories very carefully, and at the time, at the time, um, the method of working was that I would submit a plot that was a that was a couple of typed pages to the editor, um, and and uh, I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? Far too much. <laughs> Uh, but the, but you'll hear that from many of us. Um, but it's 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 uh, but no, there was a lot of give and take. As, uh, there has to be when you're working with with um, with characters that are owned by the publisher, where, where they where they're especially at a, um, with the superheroes, because they're all tied into so many other things. And and uh, if you all of a sudden want to uh, put Spider-Man in your story, the Spider-Man people get their panties in a bunch. So you just you just you know. Everything's got to be negotiated. I think that's it. That's all the time we have. Um, all right. I'm gonna, there's a. Oh.